Tonight we'll be discussing, uh, it's a story that I've never quite seen the same after studying it out. Not, this is going to be more of a Bible study, and we're going to go deeply simplistic. You think that could be done? Are you ready for a Bible study? I promise you, if you pay attention, you will walk out of here changed. I can promise you that. The way we understand scripture is critical in how we interact with God. Many times the Bible, many times the disciples in the Bible would hear these stories with Jesus and they would, it would go over their heads. And if, if us in our Western culture 2000 years ago, I mean, 2000 years removed, how much do you think that we're missing when we don't understand culture and context? The aspect that we're going to be talking about is coming to the Lord in prayer. Nothing excites me more than studying the Bible. Nothing. No roller coaster, no trip, no new worship CD. Nothing whatsoever excites me more than studying God's word. I always ask God, God, if you use me for anything, I want people to be excited about the word of God. I believe that is the only mission that I'm here for on this earth is to get you to want to read your Bible. Amen. We're going to be in Luke chapter 11 tonight. And, you know, having been to Israel a couple of times, the Middle Eastern culture is absolutely fascinating to me. We, when we, when we see things that happen in the Middle East, when we read our Bibles and we read things, we may not understand them right away because we don't understand the mindset of the hearers of those days. You know, for instance, we saw something play out on the national stage when President Bush and, and the Iraq war and all of those things happened. There was a man that was there that took his shoe off and threw it at the man that was uh, at, at President Bush. Do you remember seeing that? Now, we would think that he probably just grabbed something to throw it. But in, in the Middle Eastern culture, and when I mean Middle Eastern culture, it doesn't matter if it's Jewish, Islamic, Palestinian, whichever it is. The Middle Eastern culture has a culture of its own. The Arab culture is considered, it's considered rude to even show the bottom of your feet. It doesn't matter if you have Jordans on or Yeezys. <laughs> it does not matter whatsoever. To throw your shoe at someone is the ultimate disgrace. It's, to, it's, it's saying that this is the worst thing that I can do to you. If you remember when Saddam's statue fell, they had people that were taking their shoes off and they were slapping the statue in, a, in its face. I heard a, a testimony of a, of a man who lived in the Middle East for 60 years. And he was a, he's a scholar, actually. He went on to be with the Lord. But in church services, the deacons would come if you were sitting like this and ask you to put your foot down so you wouldn't offend your neighbor. And this was a Christian church. I've also, I've talked about this, if you've ever heard the message about the prodigal son, about how the father, you know, when the son came to the father and said, I want my share of inheritance, what he was telling them is, I want you dead and out of the way so I can have my stuff. We never understand that part because we don't realize that it's disgraceful to demand something from your father, especially if you're not even the firstborn. 
So when we look at the situation in the context, we also see that the father, when he saw the son at a far distance, it would be a small village during that time. And the villagers would have been waiting and it had been like, oh, this is going to be nice. They would have had world star hip hop or whatever video and waiting for this fight to break out. The, the villagers would have come and started harassing this boy. But instead, you have the father picks up his, his robe and begins to run, which was ultimately disgraceful. Men do not run in the Middle East, much less somebody of that nature. And to pick it up and run to meet his son and to kiss him with pig slop and all of these things would have been a stomach turner for the, all those that were listening. But the, what happened is the father was taking the shame off of the son which is a picture of what Christ would do. The father is the true hero of that story. Now, when I was in Jericho, we stayed there in 2000 for two weeks, and we, we partnered with a house church, and Jericho is predominantly Palestinian. In fact, uh, some, of, uh, some of our church went to Israel, and they were actually able to go to Jericho this time because they had an a, a, a Arabic or a Palestinian tour guide, so it gave them access but we stayed there for two weeks. And in the process of staying there, it was one of the joyous experiences I've ever had. We went into a house with this, this guy. I think he was, he was, had to be Arab or Muslim. And when we sat at the table, he invited us in. We sat at the table. It was us. It was some teenagers. And they laid out the red carpet. And listen, it was not because we were American. It was because we were visitors. They displayed the ultimate act of hospitality, which is once again one of the major backdrops of the Middle East. Now, some, as you try to understand the Bible, there are some writings that are narratives, there are parables, there are poetry, there are literal interpretations, historic, allegories, prophecy, all of these different areas or part of when we're reading the Bible. And context is always key. That's how you have a lot of people running around saying all kind of things. I'm not going to get on that. <laughs> but because they take things out of context. One of the words that I learned as I was studying from a Middle Eastern point of view is the word remez. It was a teaching tool that was done by the rabbis of those days. And remember, Jesus was a rabbi. And what this was is they would use part of a scripture in a discussion, assuming that the audience knew the rest of the story. I'll give you an example. In Matthew 21, 15 through 16, you're going to see how this works. It says, but when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, Jesus replied. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You have ordained praise. Now, why would that be offensive? Because the Pharisees knew that he was quoting Psalms 8 too. Look what it says. Jesus is always throwing shade. So shade cannot be too bad in its proper context. Psalms 8 too, it says, from the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise. Look what it says because of your enemies, to silence in foe and the avenger. So in other words, when they heard this, Jesus was like, yep, that's, that's right. 
because they knew the rest of the verse. Jesus was calling them enemies and avengers and foes. And that's what they knew. They were triggered. <laughs> Been hearing that word quite a bit. They were triggered by Hosanna. Hosanna who comes in the highest. The Pharisees knew the end of the verse. Another example of the Americanized version of Ramez is, if I say, may the force be with you, you would think. When I say chicken sandwich, you think Popeyes. There you go. The rest of you calm down when I say, <laughs> when I say best customer service ever, you would say Chick-fil-A. And you may say Chick-fil-A for best sandwich. Just think the verdict's still out on that. So once again, when we understand a Middle Eastern culture, it's, it's, it's more understandable when we look at where we're going. And I cannot wait to get there with you. Luke 11, verses 1 through 4. Listen, listen to these verses. This is where we're going to be most of the night. It happened while Jesus was praying in a certain place. After he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, Say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. This is the Lord's Prayer, but it's also known as the Disciples' Prayer. Now, what we need to know as we go further is from Luke 4, Luke 11, 4 to Luke 5 is a continuous conversation that Jesus is having. Now, the remez, remez in this story is the what? The bread, you'll see. Now, the rabbis had a group of followers that would follow them, and they took on the beliefs of the rabbi. These men, it was really about community. It was a band of brotherhood like we have never seen except probably the military. The practice back then was the rabbis would teach them a prayer, and their prayer would would reflect how they interpreted the, the, the God's word at that time. This is why they said, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. You see? So when Jesus said, give us our day, our daily, give us today our daily bread, he's referring to when God supernaturally rained manna down from heaven in Exodus 16. And he did this for 40 years every day. Now, the bread represented two things, daily substance to survive, as well as it represented the picture of salvation that was to come. Remember, the desert land of those days, nothing grew there. In fact, it was called the terrible wilderness. Look what it says in Exodus 16, 12 through 14. Are you still with me? Okay. We're not mudding yet. That's a new Iberia term. I've heard the murmuring. I'm from New Iberia, too. I know we have some people maybe online that might get offended. <laughs> All right. I've heard the murmurings of the Israelites speak to them, saying, As At twilight you shall eat meat, and between the two evenings you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quails came up and covered the camp, and in the morning the dew lay round about the camp. And when the dew had gone, behold, upon the face of the wilderness... There lay a fine, round, and flake-like thing, as fine as hoarfrost on the ground. Now, verse 15 will tell us that this is the bread that came from heaven. Remember, when you see it in verse 12, 
He says, you shall be filled with bread and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In other words, it glorified God to meet their need. Now, in Numbers 11, verse 8, when they got this bread, they were to beat it down to where it was, it was eatable. So if you think about it, Jesus is the bread that came down out of heaven. It's a picture of him being abused. Verse 14 uses a weird phrase, hoarfrost. It's where we get the word kippur, where we get the word yom kippur, which is the day of atonement. During the day of atonement, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he would take blood and he would throw it and it would land on the top of the mercy seat. And when God looked down, he would see the mercy seat covered because underneath was the law and the blood covered them for that year. So if you think about it, the atonement, atonement means to cover, and it happened during Yom Kippur. So this is a picture of Jesus, because listen where we're going. When you look, when they walked out, they saw a covered manna. They couldn't even see the ground. Man comes from the ground, amen? We come from the dust of the ground. So when they, there was a picture of Jesus covering mankind. It was a beautiful picture. It was a prophetic picture. In John 6, 31, it says, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. And Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you. When he says truly, truly, he's, he's saying, it's like he's grabbing your face and saying, Listen to what I'm about to tell you. It is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it's my father who gives you this true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said, Lord, always give us this bread. So are we understanding that it's not just bread? This was daily substance, but it was also salvation. Remember, their survival of their nation literally depended on God's ability to feed them every day. It kept them totally postured towards God. Here's the life application. Our only hope for this life is our bread from heaven, which is Christ, which is what sa saves us from the eternal fires. That's the lesson. Not only do we look to God for our salvation, but we look to him for everything else that we need in life. This is the context of their daily bread. He's, he's showing them that you must rely on God for every aspect. It is also telling us the picture of how he viewed God's word. If you look in at Luke 11, 1 through 4, it, it says, his name hallowed, his kingdom, his way, salvation provided, his forgiveness. All of this is a picture of justification. Then if you read the end of verse 4, it talks about forgive us our debts as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation. That's walking out our salvation. You have a picture of justification and sanctification, which is what I always talk about up here because that's one of the things we always get confused. This sums up the teachings of Jesus. He's justified us and he's sanctified us. He's given us the word and the power to walk out our salvation. Amen. Now, the significance of bread in their culture is very interesting. It's not like Texas Roadhouse where we just go get bread before the food. It, it was, wasn't the pre-course meal. No, we skip the bread nowadays because of carbs. And the church said, amen. <laughs> we worry more about what's in between the bread, right? The meat. In the Middle East, the bread was the utensil that brought the food from the table to their mouth. It was a first century, uh, first century 
village necessity. Another aspect is community. The Middle East is about community. Community, when you hear community come around here, that's not some new thing that we came up with. That's a biblical lifestyle, community. Communal harmony was a big deal in that culture. The question today, what does our daily bread reflect? Is it more about what we need or is it what our neighbors need? Are we praying for other people? Or have we gotten to the point where we just make our own bread? We think we can just do it on our own. See, what we fail to realize is that we can't do anything without God giving us breath in our lungs. We get wisdom Right. And that's how we carry out our job. That's how we make money. That's how we do the things we everything that we do. We need the help of God. Now, let's move on to the need. Luke eleven five. This is where we're going to be. Then he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves. Now, think about this. This is what you need to understand about Jesus' teaching. A lot of times he used exaggerations. He used hyperbole. He used ways to draw you into the story. And this is what he's saying. Now listen, imagine this. Imagine if this were to happen. The statement would be understood as that. The expect, so when you get to the, the, the middle of the story, what they're saying is no one would do this. That's where you're going to get. I'm just giving you a peek. So in other words, they know they're about to hear a far-fetched story. And you may have missed this if you read this story before. When I was reading, uh, there's a book by Alfred Edersheim. It's called Sketches of a Jewish Social Life. And this was something totally different. It was a book that I grabbed that I had. And I want in it, and I was reading about how the Pharisees dealt with, with people. And this is some of the stuff that is said according to, to these rabbis. They declared ra- that, they declared that hosp- hospitality was greater merit than the early morning attendance in the Academy of Learning. In Jerusalem, it was actually a custom to leave a curtain where the door was, because as people would come in to celebrate the feast, in other words, if they were in Bethany and they had to cross over the Mount of Olives to go into Jerusalem, as people would be coming in, they would keep a a sheet or a curtain up to let them know that we have room for you. In fact, Rabbi said that houses should have four doors on each part of the house to welcome people from all directions. Then they said, Consider all men robbers, but treat them as they are, as if they were Rabbi Gamaliel. (laughs) That was Paul's teacher. That would figure that these religious people said, treat everyone as robbers, but hey, let's keep a good, good showing. Now, if you think about it, today all we do is look after ourselves. We don't even look after our neighbor. Like Brother Francis used to always say, we, we, we spend more time building fences instead of porches. Right? Now, when we read the story, we always look at ourselves as the one coming to the door. Right? It's it's perspective. When we read a story, we put ourselves and we interject ourselves in that part of the story. But if you look at it from a a culture of back in those days, they would see multifaceted areas of these stories. 
Now think about this. As a, as a person would come in and they were visiting a village, they were a, they were a visitor to a person, but they were also visiting the village. And having a visitor at midnight was very rare, but people would leave at different points of the day not to be in the direct sun. If you've been to the Middle East, it is hot. But if you live down here, it's just as hot, I think. But many would adjust their schedules. Businessmen would come in to do business and they would, they would schedule it to where they could come in and be on the Mount of Olives. But when the sun came up and the sun shined on the temple, it would shine on that white marble in gold and bronze. It would reflect the, the light. And they said that you couldn't even look at the temple. It would be worth billions of dollars today. Imagine it was one of the, the wonders of the world. Now, getting back to the story, when the man in the house, he lived by certain rules of the village. The village was about honor. Remember, we talked about that earlier. So here's where we it gets interesting. The man comes to somebody in the house, and he's asking for bread. The bread, remember, is a utensil. They would take it, and they would sop it. Also, I like this part. You didn't double dip because you didn't want to taint. I don't like double dipping. If you eat chips and salsa with me, keep, we'll get another salsa. But that was a, a Jewish thing, and I appreciate that. No double dipping because you would taint what you were eating. Amen. Praise God. That's why Jesus said three loaves. In other words, when, when you ate, you had a loaf by yourself, and that's what you used to eat. So sometimes Jesus is saying here that this is an estimate, three loaves for one person. Interesting. Luke 6 says, for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. Now, as this person is traveling, obviously this is an inopportune time. Obviously this would be a bad time, right? Now, a friend at the door of this village would just show up and it would put you in a bind, right? You're like, you have a visitor come through and you're like, hey, man, I need to do something for this guy or this girl. And back then, cooking in a village was a communal aspect. In other words, like they would have known who had the bread during that time. So he comes shamelessly asking. He says, I have nothing to set before him. Remember, bread is the entry level need here is the utensil. Now, the original listener would have understood this, that they were going for bread. What you need to understand here is you don't see anything about knocking till you get to verse 9. So, in other words, when you go to Israel, you can see these old Jewish homes. It was one room. Everybody slept in this room. So, if you read the story, you think that somebody goes up and knocks on the door. That would be obnoxious. And you would wake up everybody in the house. It would disrupt the entire family. But we, we read verse 9 and we think, ha, seek, ask, and knock, right? That's what we think. Here's the far-fetched, laughable part of the story. This is the punchline of the story. Luke eleven seven says, and from inside he says, do not bother me. The door has already been shut and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. The disciples would have heard that and said, no one would ever say that. No one would ever do that. If, they, if that, it got word to the village that this person said, I don't have time for you. I don't have what you need. The village would have come unglued on this person because you are, you're, you're, you're shaming us. You're making our village look like we're unhospitable. And the point is the disciples would have known that. That's why they say, that's why Jesus says, imagine this. Suppose one of you, and they hear the story, they're like, nobody would do that. No one would not get up 
That's the part that you need to understand as we continue to move forward. It would be more dishonorable for him to stay in bed than to get up. Another thing is he would have went and they, you were known by your voice. So he would have said, hey, I need some some bread. And the guy would have gotten up. We don't we, we see it as pestering. Believe me, they didn't have to pester this guy to get up. And G, this is what Jesus knew that they would understand. And he starts it out by framing which one of you would do this. Now, let's look at Luke 11, verse 8. Are you following with me? Okay, we're going somewhere, and it benefits you and me. Is it confident or persistent? That's the question. Look at Luke 11, verse 8. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him whatever he needs. It's interesting because the word persistent is the Greek anadeia. And around the second century, it changed. But this is what we need to understand. It is the word uh, anadia. But out of it comes the word persistence, importunity, that these would be added into later in later translations. Actual Bible scholars actually debate what this word even means. Now think about this. We have the word impudence or importunity. If you read it in different translations. But here's the issue. Impudence or importunity literally means to annoy someone, to beat on the door, to be persistent to where it's an intrusion. When you look at the word shameless, it is the word shameless. It's the word anadia in the Greek. Here's what we need to understand. You know why we have so many translations? It's to help us to better understand certain words. Okay? So in other words, if you see the, if you see the word love, it's phileo, agape, all these different aspects. But the English word is kind of like a hosh, English word is kind of like a hoshpodge. And basically to get a copyright, you got to change certain words to update the English language and art. And that's why you have so many translations. ESV, New American Standard, these words mean the same Greek word, but it breaks down into words where we can understand. So if you read verse 9, you think this guy's beating on the door, which Jesus doesn't say that. It's an assumption that's added. Knowing the, the context and, and the, 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 the uh, culture of that day, it makes more sense. Now, when you think about it, it says in the NIV, boldness. The King, King James says importunity. NLT says shameless persistence. The Jewish Bible says chutzpah. <laughs> I like that. I like Jewish people say, oh, yes, chutzpah. We would. We would probably say other things. He has gall or he has, you know, I could go in the ditch. <laughs> the shameless part, this is what it means, okay? Knowing that the person in the house has what I need, knowing that this is not the best time to come to this person, but I know that this person is a man of honor or a woman of honor, and so I'm coming for a good reason. That's what it literally means. The best way that I can explain it, when I was a teenager, I had an, an ID at 15. I know, Mom. She knew that, though. <laughs> I had an ID really early, and a lot of my friends, we had an ID, and I would go to bars in New Iberia. Shout out to New Iberia. And, uh, and we would drive and whatnot. And I remember my parents always telling me, don't drive drunk. You know, like, don't drink and drive. She, they, I mean, they were obviously telling me that for the future. 
they had no idea I was doing this. But me and my friends, we were there, and we knew not to call their parents because they were getting in trouble. But I knew my mom and dad wanted what was best for me. And I knew that they would not want me to risk my life, no matter if it's an inopportune time, if I call them at 2 o'clock. And I remember calling and saying, Dad, um, this is me. I've been drinking, and, I, and me and my friends don't want to drive. Can you come and get us? And he came and got us and brought us home. That's shameless. I know I'm putting you out. I know you have to work tomorrow, but I really need you to help me. If, if your house was on fire and you went to your neighbor and you would go shamelessly to your neighbor, I know that this person is going to let me use the phone. That's what the, that's the spirit of what the word means. Amen. Okay. Remember the, the, the man who, the, the, the people that, that dropped their friend in the, in the hole of the house, they started shamelessly ripping this off because they knew that this person would receive healing. They knew that the centurion who went, he was a Roman soldier. He would have been looked down upon to go to a Jewish rabbi and ask for help. But he came shamelessly knowing that he's good, that he's going to answer what I need. The woman that reached out with the issue of blood could not be in a crowd of people, but she went through knowing that, yes, this is not opportunity. If they find me, they're going to stone me. But I know he has what I need. The leper, same with him as he's getting dressed and putting on his clothes and it's hurting. He knows if I go through this crowd of people, I am toast. But he knew shamelessly that God was going to meet him. And what Jesus is saying, suppose one of you, even the guy in the story, suppose one of you would do that. That guy wouldn't even do it is what they're saying. So that's the crux of the matter. Remember. It's coming for your daily bread, your daily need. Paul would say, come boldly to the throne of grace. If he wrote Hebrews, which some indication says that he did. Come confidently. Come shamelessly. Now, here's the life application. Is it confidence or persistence? I think it could be both. Think about this. I can come confidently knowing God wants to meet my need. And I can have faith because he's honorable. And he views his name above all things, right? God is not self-absorbed. He's perfect. He would be self-absorbed if he wasn't perfect. He would be conceited if he wasn't all that. The fact that God looks in the mirror is all he needs. He looks down to us. He's giving us grace, but he needs nothing in us. He is allowing us to experience in him. For God so loved the world, I'd rather it be because God loves himself than because of the way I act, right? For God so loved the world. He's like, I am God. I'm the most amazing God. <laughs> I don't want to call him anything other than what he is. And I want my people to experience me. So I'm going to show them my face. I'm going to show them my provision. I'm going to give them me. There's nothing God can give you better than himself. Amen. So I'd rather God love me because he loves himself more than because of the way I act. And I know you're going to say amen there in your own personal space. But listen, one request is sufficient. But that doesn't mean you have lack of faith if you go persistently. See, that's how it's 
looked at. Well, if you got to ask more than one time, you don't have faith. No, I don't believe that at all. Think about it. I can come confidently saying, God, I know that you have the ability to meet this need, and I'm asking. And I can also come persistently to help me deal with what I'm going through. How many times have you just been praying and praying about the same thing over and over? You think God said, hey, shut up with all that. I've heard you before. No. A lot of times that persistent prayer time turned into persistent times of worship. Yeah, you, like you're praying for somebody for cancer. Yes, God, I'm asking that you would heal this person of cancer. And But I don't have to keep coming. God, how many times? Listen, if you start doing that, you're getting on a hamster wheel and you're making your prayer works. How many times is enough? Right? We, we, we get to this point where we say, well, I ask God. If I ask him 50 times, what if I was supposed to ask 60 times? Ask him once, that's sufficient. But you can continually ask him persistently over and over and over again. It builds your faith. It, it enhances your communication with God, so to speak. And once again, in this story, I can see myself as the person coming on behalf of my neighbor. I can see myself as the person on the inside of the house. And, and I could go to someone for a guest, as a guest. Don't you like that? When you come up for prayer, we can come to God. You could be the guest. You could be the person when we're praying for each other. You can take yourself and put yourself in multi facets of this story. If you're in the house and you're able to meet that need, meet that need. Amen. My point is, Never miss this. Them being filled with bread like Exodus 16 brought glory to God. It glorifies God when he comes through for us. Not only that, God can save the soul. He can sustain the soul and meet the need of everyday life. Peter would say he has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Right? All things. I don't know where your situation fits in, but he has given you life. And he, he can come through in all things. That's where we anchor our faith. But if that's not even all of it, keep reading in Luke 11, 9 through 13. It says, so I say to you, ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. Listen, let me stop here. How many people do you know that don't get their needs, their needs met daily? All of you do. All of you eat, some more than others. <laughs> That's a joke. <laughs> you have a way to work. You work. You have a mind to use. God has given you all things. There are other things that we need that is above and beyond, and God is able to meet those as well. Look at what he says here. Once again, now that you know the inroad to Jesus' teaching. Now, suppose one of you, <laughs> right here's where he's saying, right? is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he asks for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? Then look at what he says. This is exaggeration. If you then being evil, <laughs> think about that. He's going extreme. He's looking at his crowd, his disciples, like you being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? In other words, when Jesus is telling a story, this is what you can't miss. He's not saying this guy didn't want to get up. What he's saying is, in their mind, they're saying nobody would not get up. 
So Jesus is being exaggeratory. Is that a word, Nathan? No? Okay. He's exaggerating, saying this guy would get up for his own honor. How much more is God? Listen, God doesn't have honor. He doesn't have love. He doesn't have, he is these things. He is integrity. He doesn't possess integrity. He is that. He is, he doesn't possess love. He is love. So from who he is flows out of what he has. We love, we, but we're not all loving. God is perfect. So everything that we receive, it's coming out of who God is. You see, that's way better. God is love because he is love. So God loves. In other words, God meets the needs because he's honorable, not because he's trying to win somebody over. He doesn't have to win anybody over. He is winnable. He is honor. So this is the misunderstanding. It gets you on that hamster wheel, like I said, of how many times do I ask? Can I come to God confidently? Can I come to God persistently? And the answer is what? A resounding yes. God loves you more than the neighbor. I can promise you that. So here's where we're ending tonight. We're ending a little early. This is what we need to know. Come boldly, come expecting, right? Come boldly and come expecting. And we could also remember that those loaves were bare minimum, right? That was the day, that was the, hey, I need the fork and the spoon, basically is what he was saying. So don't be surprised if he gives you the goblet of drink, if he gives you the, the dessert, if he gives you the napkins. Don't be surprised if he gives you above and beyond which you can think or ask. Listen, when you bring the Holy Spirit, there is no telling what God wants to do. You can come for the gifts of God. Amen. You can come and say, God, I'm believing you for the entry-level stuff. I'm believing you for above and beyond what I can think or ask. I can believe you for the necessities of my family. There is nothing that I can that I have to doubt. I can believe for healing, right? How much more? will God give you? So here's the question. He'll save you. He'll give you your needs. He'll give you the Holy Spirit. And he can ask, you can ask for the miraculous. So with that being said, can we stand and let's go to the Lord in prayer. And we're going to bring these needs before God. Father, we come in the name of your son, Jesus. And Lord, I'm asking that if there are any that are here today, tonight that do not know you as Lord, God, that you would show them your miraculous salvation and regenerate their heart. With every head bowed and every eye closed, if that would be you, if you could say, I want to come to know the Lord tonight, I just want you to slip your hand up. I'm not going to ask you to come forward or anything. I see your hand. See your hand. Thank you, Lord. Now let's pray this prayer. Join in with me. Dear Heavenly Father, I come to you in the name of your Son, Jesus. And I ask you to save my soul. Lord, I repent of every sin that I've ever committed. And I ask you to wash and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Thank you for dying on the cross on my behalf. And I thank you that you rose from the dead and are seated at the right hand of God. In Jesus' name, I pray. 
Amen. Praise God for making that decision. Now, if you can say that I have a major need that I want the Lord to meet, let me see your hand once again and let's go to the Lord because I want you to have a new perspective on the way you can go to God. Father, we come in the name of your son, Jesus. Lord, and we bring this need before you. And God, we ask that you would glorify yourself on behalf of our need. Father, if it's daily bread, if it's the miraculous, if it's the gifts of the Spirit, God, we bring it before you right now. And Lord, we thank you in advance because we know that you are honorable. We know that you are good and we know that you love us. Father, we come consistently, we come confidently, and Lord, we come persistently, knowing that you will in no way cast us aside. Father, we thank you for the words of Peter through the Holy Spirit, that you truly have given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Father, we thank you for this time tonight in your word. We ask that you would bless us as we go, and it's in Jesus' name we pray and ask, and the church said, Amen and amen. Praise God. Glorify God. Amen. Well, look, if you need prayer for anything, we'll be up here. We'd love to pray with you. Good night.